With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. I pulled out the emergency credit card and then the emergency emergency credit card. I remember going to the supermarket and I remember going there buying the cheapest bread, the cheapest minced beef, the cheapest milk and like the cheapest like tomato sauce and just eating that for like weeks and weeks and weeks. It was so bad for you, but it was, it was all I needed to keep going. This is Finding Founders. I'm Samuel Donner, and that was Maxwell Nee describing the destitution he faced when he quit his six-figure banking job. This departure abandoned conventional success in search of the success he wanted, but still it was a discouraged transition. Growing up under the pressures of his Chinese-Malaysian cultural roots, ideas of traditional success constantly loomed over him. They said, become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer. But Max was restless. He wanted something different. Today, we're telling his story and how he went from running on financial fumes to building high-performing coach, a successful coaching business that manifests the dreams of other restless entrepreneurs. How did he get there? We'll get to that in a second. But for now, we're going to take you across the world where his story starts the land of marsupials, eucalyptus trees, and ridiculously good coffee. Max's homeland, Australia. I actually grew up in a first generation, I don't like using the word immigrant, but yeah, my family are originally from Malaysia. So we are Malaysian Chinese. And you know, one memory that really sticks out for me when I was really young is that in like a Chinese family, it's a bit like in the culture to have a really high standard of achievement and grades on your kids. So like, for example, there's like a running joke that A stands for average, B stands for be better, and C stands for can't come home. We learn to correlate our self-worth with quantitative measurements. We treat a B plus as an F. I was probably about nine years old and I was sitting in my room playing with Lego and I felt like a dark looming cloud of remorse and not feeling good enough like on the back of my neck and in the back of my mind. I realized what it was, you know, my report card came home and I received like B's and C's and I usually received all A's and I just beating myself up, beating myself up, beating myself up and then I thought to myself, I really, really don't want to feel like this. I realized I put myself into a box of either I achieved like perfect grades or I feel like crap. But I realized that this isn't going to work for me. I'm going to go crazy. So then I did something for the first time in my life, which I sort of gave myself like a mindset reset. And I asked myself, what would it be like if it was okay for me to fail? It was okay for me to not have this expectation of myself. And then something really weird happened when I, like the dark looming cloud on the back of my neck just lifted. And that's when I really learned, you know, how to like let go of attachment. And I just sort of released all this pressure for myself. Going back a bit, why don't you like the term immigrant? I don't like using it because I didn't suffer. I consider myself super, super lucky. I consider myself receiving the best of both worlds, like having the culture from our home country, but living in the rich, abundant, amazing places of Australia. 
I definitely had my challenges and, and things like that, but I, I'm always a glass half full kind of person. So I definitely see things in ways that I learn to appreciate them. Max viewed his glass as half full. He was filled with immense gratitude for the life his parents were able to provide in the abundance of his country. But the pressure of his family's culture created a fear of failing, and it weighed against him. If his identity was tethered to his academic success, then what did it mean when he earned a B or a C? It meant that his identity was under attack. But then he got those grades, and it wasn't the end of the world. He thought, huh, maybe this isn't so bad. After all, life doesn't stop with an imperfect report card. Once Max recognized this, he was free. But unregulated freedom doesn't guarantee results. And Max was about to face this head on. So at the time, the allowing myself to fail wasn't, you know, to give myself this grand, amazing life. At the time, it was literally just like a survival thing. Like I learned this thing that I could do to feel better and make it through the day. It actually turned out to be a bit of a problem because I overused it to a point where I was just being lazy. You know, I was really lazy in school. I was lazy because I, I, I took all the pressure off myself and I was okay with just knowing that I could do more, but, but not really going for it. It took me a bit of time to find my balance and what that laziness was about, basically being afraid to fail, being afraid to try something and really give it my best. The teachers would say stuff that would replicate what my parents would say, like, if you just tried, you, you could achieve more and better and things like that. And I was just like a cop-out, basically. So not taking things seriously, like just being a bit of a joker. In hindsight, probably wasn't lazy. I was probably just unstimulated. I didn't go to a fancy school and only the fancy schools had what's known as a semi-formal. So a formal was like a prom and we didn't have one. So I was sitting in my room and then I decided to host a semi-formal. So I wanted a big party. I wanted to have fun. I wanted something where we could dress up and look forward to like a real event. So what I did was actually quite good business strategy. But at the time, it was literally just me trying to not empty my 16-year-old bank account. And so what I did was I went around to everyone in the whole grade. I asked everyone like a series of like seven or eight questions. I said, hey, if we had this event, would you come? If you came, which one of these three dates would you go to? What kind of theme would you like? What kind of music would you like? So I, I asked everyone like a series of like, I don't know, seven or eight questions and got everyone to basically co-create and really buy into creating this event. And then I went to the first, say, 25 people who were really, really keen to go and were ready to pay, sold the first 25, and then went around to everyone else and said, hey, we've sold 25 in the first day. Do you want to come? The spaces are going soon. So I sort of created urgency for them to jump on it and go for it. In the end, I sold like more than 100 tickets, $30 each, paid for the venue, paid for the food, catering, music and DJ without any marketing budget, Facebook ads, you know, newspaper or, or anything like that. And, and just had like a really, really fun night that everyone liked and I really liked because I put all, all this work into making it happen. How'd that feel? Yeah, it felt awesome. I definitely milked it more than everyone. And it was quite nice because a lot of people that were there really appreciated it. And they said, you know, Max, I'm really happy that you put this together. Like no one else would have done this. You know, I sort of really proved to myself that I've wanted to do something and it stimulated me that I could do it. As Max said, he wanted a party, and being broke wouldn't stop him. He tapped into this innate ability to organize and execute a plan, and did so in a way that fulfilled him. 
This feeling was almost foreign because school was, well, uninspirational. Max channeled the energy that might have been directed towards academics into something that he felt actually mattered. In this way, he was defying the rigid expectations that had been set out for him. Max was ready to continue to push the boundaries and pursue the next big thing. So I go to university and I hate it. <laughs> I absolutely hate it. I studied the wrong thing at first. I studied like town planning. I don't know why I picked that. I think someone put the idea in my head and, and that wasn't it. And then I switched to something else. Um, I forgot what that was, but, but that wasn't it. And then I finally found business and I found the most congruence in, you know, what I like doing. I like economics. I like marketing. But at the same time, I still wasn't really focused. You know, I was messing around, I was going out, I was partying six days a week and trying to pull myself together to, to get to class. And at the end of it, it took me about like six years to, do, to finish a three-year degree because I just kept like failing subjects. I, I was actually put on probation at one point from university because my, my GPA was um, was so low and I'd missed so many classes. Um, they said, you know, if you fail one more subject, that we're going to have to kick you out of university. I got my shit together, managed to graduate university and sort of got my head screwed back on. And all of a sudden I hit, I don't know what it was, like 22 or, or 20, 20 something. And I said, okay, well, I'm ready to take life seriously now. So then um, at the time I was already working at the bank, Commonwealth Bank of Australia. And um, I had, you know, really turned up the gear and into how serious I was about making my, my life work at the bank. And I, I received like three promotions within five years and um, was working in corporate as like like one of the youngest analysts in the state. What was your your dream or goal or aspiration as you were going through the ranks at Commonwealth? Yeah, so when I first got into the bank, it was like, I want to be CEO. And then, you know, a few years into it, I started watching um, Suits. And after I started watching Suits, I, I fell in love with uh, New York City. I said, oh my God, you know, I want to be a banker in New York City. And that, that's what really got me through university is like this idea that I could be a, an investment banker or, or whatever. I almost switched to law like three times from watching Suits. How the hell did you know they were the police? I read this novel in elementary school and it was the exact same thing. I sort of hit a brick wall and uh, realized that it wasn't really what I wanted to do anymore. How did you know? One day, my fifth year at the bank, and I walked into the office, and I saw my boss's boss, and my boss's boss's boss, and my boss's 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 boss, all within about one second, and I realized that I did not want any of their jobs. And I realized, like, you know, if I don't want any of their jobs, what the hell am I doing here? You know, I don't want to spend, like, a second wasting any time in this, in this job that just became so hard, like waking up in the morning, trying to tie a tie, trying to button up my shirt, which is so painful, it was just excruciating. You know, I went from loving this thing to, to just, just hating it, I, I, I don't know why. Um, and then I realized that, you know, I need to, I need to get out of my comfort zone because I, I realized I, I'd been playing small and playing comfortable for five years working for the bank. That was what really hit me because, you know, pretending that I liked it there, pretending to stay there any longer than, than and after that point would just be basically lying to myself. I, I went to a Bucks party. Uh, Bucks party is like a stag party. So it's like when, when one of your friends is getting married and you go have like a final last hurrah. We were in Phuket in Thailand 
And um, I, I didn't realize by the time, but um, everyone that I went there with were all business owners. And they were all working from laptops and were sitting in like this 14 bedroom villa and just like sending emails and like doing their thing and doing their business. And I thought, whoa, like this, this whole like, you know, laptop on the beach, coconut thing, it really exists. And, 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 and that's when it really, really hit me. I said, like, it's possible. I just have to go for it. So that was a bit like a, it was a bit of like a virus that sort of inf- infected me at that point and started to drive like, you know, the way I would see things and, and look at things uh, moving forward. So that was my inspiration for, for wanting to work on my, uh, on my own business, which didn't happen until probably about uh, a year later. I decided, okay, well, I need to, I want to catch up, you know, I want to catch up on all the growth that I felt like I, I wasn't achieving when I was like playing small, playing in my comfort zone, working for the bank. So then I um, quit my job. I moved to Canada uh, just for some part in the world that was different to Australia. I had a different climate. You know, it's fairly close to New York City as well. Moved to Toronto. Um, no friends, no job, no place to stay, no network. Um, never been there before. So Max said goodbye to the stability of home and arrived in Canada without a padded landing. It was a risk but he didn't care. The opportunity of a blank slate filled him with excitement. All those years of school, the monotony of his banking job, Max had been treading down the path of practicality. Now, he was prepared to take another route, one that involved a 23-hour plane ride. He was in search of the oasis he dreamed up in Thailand. I want to talk about this move because when we were looking at the research, this doesn't make sense. This guy left Australia because he hated his finance job. And then he went to Canada and got another finance job at Curex. And I imagine it's not that simple, but I was wondering if you could explain that rationale. I do have an interest in finance and things like that, but I, I thought to myself, you know, the dream is to work in like a startup where there's like free food and bean bags and people walking around barefoot and fake grass and, and free tea and coffee and all that sort of stuff. And I go to this place and meet Jonathan, who's the CEO and founder of Curex, and he's looking for people to do sales. And I and I, I said, okay, I'll, I'll do, you know, whatever whatever you need. I prefer to do marketing, but, you know, sales is pretty close. I go to this this co-working space, like downtown in Toronto, and there's free food and beanbags, people walking around barefoot and like tea and coffee and cubicles that you can talk in, all that sort of stuff. And then I realize, holy shit, I'm still not happy. You know, I'm like, I'm just super, super really? still not happy. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm, I'm like picturing all those things. I'm like, oh my God, that sounds so cool. Yeah. Like, like no, no. Did that, that must have worn off like really quickly. Yeah, it was, I was like, so I, I just believed there was love, right? I believed there was love walking in there and then it settled. I was like, well, this isn't love. It hit me that, yeah, I'm just not happy. And then I was like, whoa, I really can't work for anyone else. Like I really, really can't, you know, and I tried to, to do another job helping one of my one of my really, really good friends in his startup as well. But, um, you know, ultimately not building something that was mine was like this, you know, toxic venom that was just like sapping away at me. Max was feeling the toxic venom of limitation, of banality. The dream that had seemed so alluring for so long, workspaces with beanbags and free drinks and perfect workflow harmony was finally his to enjoy, but it still wasn't enough. 
He wanted to be in complete control of his path, unobstructed by the rules of others. He was like a groomsman, always invited to weddings, but never the groom. Now, after helping friend after friend grow their business, it was finally his turn. But starting his own business was going to require a type of resilience he'd never experienced before. How was it to quit without a safety net? Because like you, it seems like you, you really didn't have a safety net. So, so money was running out, you know, I've been in Canada for about a month and a bit now and, and I had to pay rent and deposit and, and all that sort of thing and buy a bed and, and I uh, didn't have a whole bunch of savings, right? I had probably like a half a month's worth of rent and food and everything. But to me at the time, I, I just refused to go back to a job because it felt like I was jumping from one burning ship to another, like I was going to lose either way. So I'd rather do something where you know, I would lose and jump to a burning ship, but it was something that I, you know, was at least energized to try to work out. Like I was energized to solve the problem of how to build my own business rather than solve the problem of how to be happy working for someone else. I was sleeping at my friend's house for about three weeks as they were like helping me to, to get my get my shit together. I sold like a belt that I had. I sold like these Bluetooth speakers that I had to help pay for rent. I don't know how you manage the stress of of draining your bank account just to make it another month. What is your mental state in this? Because it's like, yes, you're going towards maybe what you want to do. You're escaping the fire. But to escape the fire of the burning ship, you're maybe drowning in the ocean. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Like it sounds dramatic and it is, you know, the reality of it is that it is and it's not a nice place to be and no one wants to be there. But, um, you know, I never felt more alive. I never felt more alive doing what was important to me, even though society would see it as crazy. You know, walking away from like a six figure banking job to go and sleep on couches in a, in a foreign country that's just as expensive. I kept saying to myself, I just need a bit more time. You know, I just need a bit more time, a bit more time. Like I never felt happier to struggle doing something that, that was important to me rather than, you know, thrive doing something I didn't give a shit about. I remember going to the supermarket, I pulled out the emergency credit card and then the emergency emergency credit card. And I remember going there buying the cheapest bread, the cheapest minced beef, the cheapest milk and like the cheapest like tomato sauce. And just eating that for like weeks and weeks and weeks. It was so bad for you, but it was, it was all I needed to keep going. Relaxing on tropical island sand was worlds away from tossing and turning from couch to couch in a cold, bustling city. Yet, Max was content. It didn't matter that his diet was limited to processed, unhealthy food. It didn't matter that his funds were so low he resorted to emergency credit cards. All he needed to sustain himself was a genuine mission. It may seem paradoxical that the same person who wanted freedom and luxury was okay with couches and debt, but it's not. Max wanted the good life to stem from an opportunity he believed in. An opportunity took the form of a Facebook ad. So I'm hit with a Facebook ad, you know, sleeping on my friend's couch. And it was like, you know, how to build an online digital marketing business. And it was like a few thousand dollars. And at the time, I didn't really have that. Yeah, you had barely enough money for premium eggs. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know. So I borrowed the money from my brother and I like had to fight myself. And I was feeling guilty before I even asked him. I had a feeling like he would support me and say, yes, obviously, you know, 
I asked him if I could borrow the money and then I did. And then I was like, holy shit, I'm in now. Like I'm committed. Like I've, I've got the money. I've got to do it. I'm going to buy it. I'm going to make it work no matter what. I borrowed the money. That was really uncomfortable for me, but I, I just did it. It was like the only way. It was literally that or just shrivel up and die, you know, having run out of money because I, I refused to go back to the other sinking ship of going to work for someone else. It was like a eight week program and I worked my ass off to the point where I was just like pretty much working from the time I opened my eyes to the time I closed my eyes, just sucking it up, actioning things, learning, testing things. And then within about five weeks of the program, I actually created my first client, my first $1,500 client. Wait, what? I worked for an online course company for a little bit out of college. And the company I worked for was great. Like they offered like a decent amount, but generally entering that whole world, I realized just how much garbage is out there in like the course guru online world. And to find something that actually provided value seems like almost lucky, or it seems like you had an uncanny ability to apply that knowledge. Did you realize that? And then also like, did you have an idea what your like the peers in that group were doing? Yeah, so when I went to the course, it was a bit like when I went into the bank, it was like, you know, everyone's doing well. Who doesn't want to be at the top? Who doesn't want to, you know, reach like 100K a year as quickly as possible? But after going through the course and, and everything and seeing all the work that I had put in, yeah, it hit me that the vast majority of people, I'd say probably 90% of people in the program didn't receive any results. And it's not because the program didn't work. It's because they, they didn't take the actions as, as aggressively as, as I was willing to. When I look back and think about how perfect it was for me for that course to pop up on a Facebook ad, I was extremely lucky. And also I took a whole bunch of actions, you know, I really, really did. And there was just all the right ingredients, desperation, pride to not have to say to my brother, sorry, I can't pay you back. It was just everything just pushed me to the brink of, um, of just becoming like the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. Like it just, everything just pushed me into that cocoon. The only way out was up and I just had to make it happen. So what did the acquisition of that client look like? I actually met them on Tinder. I was just in conversation, ended up having a a coffee with the person, you know, said, this is what I'm doing now. I said, oh, you know, I'm sort of looking for someone that does that. I said, okay, well, let's chat. And then we had another chat and then another chat. And then they said, okay, I think I want to go ahead. I said, oh shit. Well, (laughs) okay. Yeah. You know, let's do it. And then I I did it, applied everything in the program and, you know, got some pretty cool results uh, for them in their business. Can you uh, maybe give insight to some of those results? And also, I just think it's hilarious that you went on a date and that's how you got your first client. Yeah. You know, I, I tell this story to my clients now. I say, if you're listening for opportunities, you will find them. Yeah, the results are cool. We plugged in like a new email marketing system and it just worked really well. Add like another facet. It never hurts to have control of your own traffic and lists and clients. Yeah, that happened. And that just like filled me with like belief, like, oh my God, like this thing is real. I just got to do all that work again and again and again and again. And revenue can, can start to happen. All the while, I had really, really mapped out. I said, you know what? I only need $2,000 a month. <laughs> like my, my life had become, you know, living as like this banker to like being so stubborn. I don't know if stubborn is the right word, but stubborn about not wanting to go back to work for someone else. I was like, how low can I decrease my cost of living? The one cent eggs and the one cent bread and the 95 cent minced beef. Like if I keep everything really, really low, I don't actually need that much. So I was in that headspace at the time. And just like that one client was like this, you know, massive like hallelujah, which is really, really cool. It gave me everything that I needed to keep going. 
After years of feeling uninspired as a student and employee, Maxwell finally found the key to success, independence. Everything, the direction of his education, the business of his clientele, all of that was now under his control. With control, Max started to believe in his competence. He stopped fearing his efforts wouldn't be good enough and seized opportunity. Max absorbed every ounce of his online course, saved every dime, and spun every Tinder date into a business opportunity. That opportunity had always existed. The only difference is that now, Maxwell had a new perspective. Life always seems to present us with the tools and resources to fly, but it's up to us to recognize that we have those wings already and put them to use. Maxwell's newfound courage would send him soaring. In the business community of this online program that I had bought, a guy called Adrian had reached out to me for help for an accountability buddy. I said, yeah, cool, I'll be your accountability buddy. We had a few calls. We sort of got along. He's an older guy. He's about like 50. But, um, you know, he had like a really fun personality and he lives in Barcelona. After I got that first client, he said, hey, you know, why don't you come here and work on a few projects together and we can like just kill it. I said, okay, yeah, why not? So I used the money that I got for my first client to book a flight to Barcelona, even though I've never met him before. And we just met like a few weeks earlier in this online program. So then I get to Barcelona, we decide to launch, you know, our first niche together, which was, I think, like helping life coaches build their business. So Adrian and I meet and we hang out. He lets me stay at his house for like three weeks and we get along like really, really well, like pretty much like best mates. And then it sort of hits me. We decide to try like a new niche, which is ended up being a bit of a distraction. And the niche was online marketing for gyms. And then I thought to myself, well, I don't know anything about the gym market in Toronto, but I know a lot about the gym market in Australia. Like I could literally walk into a few gyms and literally just create clients just like that. So then I fly back to Toronto, pick up my stuff and move back to Australia. I'm like, I'm going to hit it really hard and, and work really, really hard on the gym market in Australia and make that work. And then uh, just work things out from there. So then I do that. Like I would sort of get some clients and some work, some don't really work out, but it didn't really fill my cup. Like it didn't really sort of energize me to help a gym just, you know, generate leads and interests for their salespeople to call. So then Adrian and I go back to, to working with life coaches. Right, like helping life coaches build their business. And then we meet a gentleman by the name of Ryan Matthew. We get along really, really well. And then it sort of hits us. Hey, you know, like we should do something together, all three of us. And then later that year, we ended up basically birthing the business that I have today. So me, Ryan and Adrian are all now business partners. And we launched the first iteration of the business that we have today, which was called We Only Work Online, which is helping people become like digital nomads. And then that evolved into more committed clients, which is helping coaches create more committed clients. When we were more committed clients, we met our fourth business partner called Tina Brigley. She lives in Canada. She came into our program and she was like the highest performing client that we ever had. So within about four months, she created about a hundred grand in, in her business, like just absolutely phenomenal results. And then I was talking to Ryan about it. We had an idea, like, why don't we bring Tina into the business? Like, you know, it'd be cool to have Tina in the business. Like she's a, she's a high performer and uh, we were three guys. So, you know, having a, a woman's sort of flavor and touch and different accent in the business, you know, would only give us more diversity and more bandwidth and more range. And then she came into the business. And then at this point, the business had changed to the business that we have now, which is High Performing Coach. That was just last year. 
We've just been like on this rocket ship since then, just applying everything that we learned, you know, failing fast, failing forward, failing quickly, all four of us going super, super hard for more than two years now. It's funny to think that a business plan filled with so much failing, failing fast, failing forward and failing quickly would be the key to Maxwell succeeding. But this mindset allowed him to develop the team and company he has today. Most people would be a tad hesitant to fly across the world if they weren't assured their endeavor would be 100% successful. But whether it was Canada, Barcelona, Australia, or Belgium, if it held the possibility of improving his business, Maxwell would be there. If you plan to avoid failures, you won't take risks. But innovation lies in the risk of the unknown. With 2020 around the corner, the whole world would soon step into the unknown. But Maxwell would be ready to fearlessly navigate into this new territory. So we did a few live events back to back to back, like every sort of eight weeks apart. And the last one that we did was a complete sellout. It was in February 2020. And, and this event ended up being like the, the cornerstone of our, um, of our business. I had an idea. I was like, well, why don't we pay like a videographer? So we pay for a videographer to come. We film the whole event and it ended up being like the, the benchmark and hallmark of all the content that we had that sort of made us look much more professional than the way we had looked prior. At this point, we were sort of hitting about like the 60, 70K a month mark. It was a lot of fun and I, I got to really bring in my love of filling up a room and getting people in there and, and meeting people real life and really connecting with our audience as well. And so we sell at the event like four or five weeks in advance. And then what happened was the lockdown happened in London. It was a very different Britain that woke up this morning. Those venturing out for essentials kept their distance. The event basically couldn't happen. We had sold all these tickets and we said, okay, uh, what do we do? Like this is 60% of our revenue each month comes from these live events and have just disappeared. So we decided to try something crazy that we knew would have some stuff that we needed to work out, which is to bring them online. So we brought them online through Zoom. The engagement in that Zoom room was bigger, better, more energized than in person. And the amount of people that wanted to work with us was the same percentage, if not maybe even a little bit more. So this sort of like really blew up our minds as to what's really possible in our business as long as we keep working on finessing and perfecting this sort of like formula that we found for doing online workshops but treating them as if they were real life, you know, as if having 100 people in a Zoom room is the equivalent of having 100 people at an event all with a front row seat. Today, the world of Zoom feels like all we know. But if we think back to the first few weeks of the lockdown, many of us couldn't imagine how live events like Maxwell's would continue to exist. So many of us felt helpless. How could we possibly connect with each other if we're all separated by a screen? Just like his 16-year-old self, determined to party with classmates, Maxwell would use the limited resources he had and his hard work to bring people together. He realized that now, 100 people could all have a front row seat to his events. Now people from all over the world could sit in the audience. He left no time dwelling on the past and put all of his energy into what he could make of the present. High-performing coach would be ahead of the game as the rest of the world slowly accepted a new reality. 
lead us up to where everything is with what you're doing today and how COVID might have actually kickstarted parts of your business that you might not have realized and how you've capitalized on opportunities that happen and are a product of massive disruption. At this point in time, we quickly realized like no one was doing events like this. Like at the time, everyone was waiting for, for COVID to end. So we said, okay, why don't we just double, triple down on this? We even brought in like industry experts in the form of speakers. Like we did a collaborative event with Marissa Pia, done one with Harvel Hendricks, all within about the last six months or so. What that did was that it sort of like really, really set us up for like a really cost-effective way to, to share a stage, a virtual stage with someone else. Because usually if you were to bring someone like that to your event in person, it would cost you like 25 grand plus flights, plus hotels, plus accommodation. But because it's much, much less than that, all we're asking for 60 minutes of their time in front of the computer, it drops it down to a fraction of that. You know, I really think even after COVID and everything like that, like online events will be here to stay. If you're not taking advantage of it right now, you could be missing a wave. Like you could be missing a huge wave that has like low risk, low t- low cost, you know, high opportunity, high upside. All you got to do is just start figuring stuff out. The world was on lockdown, but Maxwell's company remained in motion. And it's so impressive because it's hard to keep up. The wave of online connection did not slowly build like most cultural shifts, but instead hit the world like an unexpected tsunami. Rather than fighting against it or waiting for it to crash, high-performing coach rode the wave, using its benefits to propel themselves forward. COVID-19 set an extraordinary amount of restrictions on us all. But with a mindset like Max's, limits and boundaries are seen as fuel for creativity, an opportunity to look at things from a brand new perspective. I have no doubt that Maxwell and his team will arrive on the shores of virtual engagement, ready for the future that awaits us all. So you figured it out. You're doing well. What does the future of your company look like? And what does your future look like? And what are you most excited for in these coming months and years? Yeah, so the future of the company is basically replicating the model that we found that works really well. Complementary businesses and branches of the business. There's a branch of the business coming called Heart Powered Concepts, which is spiritual personal development for couples. There's another one coming called Academy, which will be, you know, basically certifying coaches who are starting right from zero, who've never coached before. So then we could then help them build the business if that's what they're looking at doing. But for me, it's basically just just continuously like driving this ship. You know, I really want to drive this ship to become like Richard Branson, Virgin Group, Behemoth for like personal development, helping people build their business and transformation. What advice would you give to your past self? It's always going to be scary. You know, like I was sort of waiting and waiting for this fear to go away, but it, it never does. I still feel scared, like taking certain actions in our business. It would be for me to commit to figuring it out sooner because it doesn't matter how long you wait, doesn't matter how much money you have, it's still going to feel scary. There's still going to be stuff to figure out. You know, I was I was forced to figure it out when I was forced to jump from that burning ship of the job I hate to, you know, trying to build my business with uncertainty and, you know, lack of security and, and income. The difference between these two burning ships was that one would never recover. The job he hated would never miraculously become fulfilling. And it makes sense. If the only reward from our work is the relief that we didn't fail, there's nothing to motivate us. But as his own boss, Maxwell garnered the motivation needed to kill indecisiveness and set sail. This extends to all of us. 
When our work is fulfilling, our tasks and accomplishments energize us to sustain discipline and work towards some kind of greater goal. It's just that sometimes anxiety stops us from even getting started. So I think Max has left us all with an important question to ask ourselves. What are you afraid of? And how are you going to use it to push through, motivate yourself, and reach your goals? Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Finding Founders Podcast on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Finding Founders is produced and hosted by me, Samuel Donner. Our audio editing team lead is Adrian Tapia. Support from Joseph Cho, Matt Fernandez, Spencer Khan, Sophia Donner, Shannon O'Halloran, Jess DeSena, Sebastian Gazada, Samuel Stenica, and Maura Lynch. Our writing team lead is Elizabeth Bowen with support from Avnish Sengupta, Prerika Chopla, Mitchell Lynn, Lise Caldwell, Jessica Gung, Zachary Loudermilk Batia, Kylie McCreary, Lauren Pomeranz. Our outreach and research lead is Jessica Lynn with support from Sasha Ivanova, Marie Vaughn, Lisa Lett, Ankita Numbiar, Sarah Hobson, Gary Zane, and Melody Sopani. Our design and social media team lead is Ling Mu Hu, with support from Tiffany Day, Ayla Erickson, Shruti Ramanand, Carla Ruvalcava, and Alana Donnelly. The video editing team is Eli Lawrence, with support from Melanie Mack and Nina Maravich. To see more of what we're up to, subscribe to our newsletter at findingfounders.co. Thanks again for listening, and see you next week.